on work as a society, all of us. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. That no people on earth are so fearless or daring or determined. The world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. This is the most macro environment as I've ever seen. Undercapitalized, the wrong people, bad market conditions. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the TEL podcast, where we talk to educate and lead America's small business owners, managers, and anybody else willing to listen into the 21st century of business. I'm Taylor Lasseter. We are here in the great state of Idaho. We are in... Rathrum? Post Falls. Post Falls, which is basically the same. Yeah. 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 It's like right over the railroad. But uh, I'm here with my, I mean, I guess you could call him like kind of my little brother. I grew up with this dude. Uh, Both of our families are really good friends and we would always go camping. Um, They had a motorhome, we had a trailer and we just went all over the place. But uh, he is now a police officer up here in the Kootenai. Is it Kootenai or Kootenai? Kootenai. Kootenai. That's not how it's spelled. No, it's, I don't know, old um, native Indian. Mm, I feel like they say Kootenai. They might. (laughs) Who knows? Uh, Us modern folk called it Kootenai. (laughs) Anyways, Kootenai County. um, And so we'll talk about all that. He's actually worked for multiple agencies in his career, but he just recently started a personal finance company called Finding Hope Financial, mm-hmm. correct? Yep. So I'm going to let him get to it and uh, and start talking about himself and his life. But first, as always, I want to thank everybody who listens to this and shares it and likes and all that stuff. We're uh, moving up in the world. We got over 600, almost 650 plays on just, I think, 12 or 13 episodes now. I just recently talked to a couple farmers, one of them a friend of mine that I served in the Marine Corps with, and then his buddy that owns a farm and his family have been farmers and ranchers for many, many years. And we just talked to him. That's an excellent podcast that'll be coming out soon. It'll probably be out by the time this one is edited and released, but go check that one out. Check out the last, I don't know, five podcasts because I kind of talk about a lot of the world events that are happening um, regarding the financial sector around the world when it comes to currency and banking and all that stuff. And it's getting a little spicy out there. So go check that out if you haven't heard any of it. But uh, we're going to get into it. So Gabe Joling, nice to have you, man. Thanks. It's good to be here. Who are you? Where are you, where are you from? Uh, I'm Gabe Joling. I grew up in Yucca Valley, California, next to Joshua Tree because everybody's heard of that place now. Yeah. A lot of hippies, a lot of hipster people have heard of that. Yep, I don't miss it. (laughs) Yeah. I used to miss it um, a little bit, and then I moved back there and saw that it wasn't growing at all, and people were the same, and I was like, okay, I got to get out of here. Yeah, I went back once after I moved, and I was like, I'll never go back, and I have never gone back. Yeah. Um, So I guess we'll just get into the the police career because that's basically what you did right out of high school and stuff, right? Yeah, pretty much. I uh, volunteered for the sheriff's office down there for seven years. And as soon as I was old enough, I found an agency that was willing to take me at 19 and moved up to Olympia, Washington and started with a state agency there. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. How did you, I mean, what made you pick that one? Did you just put out like a mass resume thing for police officers? And Yeah, I applied. Yeah. I, I got back from working in Hawaii for a summer because there's nothing to do between that weird gap of 18 to 20 if you don't go to college or and you haven't decided what to do yet. So I got antsy and we knew we wanted to move up to the Northwest area. So I found one agency out of the hundreds around here because every you know, small 20 person town has a police agency um, that was willing to take me at 19 and a half. So I threw out an application and I didn't think I'd get hired. I was like, I'll figure out what the process is like for when I you know, actually get hired one day and two months later, they're like, hey, you wanna move up in like a month? I was like, well, all right, sure. <laughs> nice, that's quite the adventure. It kind of reminds me of whenever I joined the military because I joined, I didn't even turn 18 until after boot camp. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, a, it's exciting, but also a little terrifying. Yeah. You don't know what to expect. It's one of those dumb things that you don't realize is dumb until after you do it. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, I mean, I learned a lot, but I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hindsight. Uh, I kind of want to back up. You said you volunteered at 17. I know some of what you did at 17. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? I did a lot of stuff. I uh, was an explorer um, with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department and I did a lot of stuff there. <laughs> Are we not allowed to <laughs> say what you did? I, I'll say what I did. Okay. I mean, I got a lot of experience is what happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I developed, you know, good working relationships with all the deputies. So they really, um, they knew I wanted to pursue a career um, with them. And I really wanted to join that agency. It didn't work out that way, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's probably, I mean, obviously we know a ton of people that are still working down in California and stuff, yeah. but it's probably a good thing that you didn't get stuck down there. Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't. I... I wish that agency was up here, mm -hmm. but yeah, you know, still happy where I am. So, was there anything that they had you do to participate in helping get oh, yeah. that guys off the street? At oh yeah, it was uh, a fantastic experience, and um, they don't have it in a lot of parts of the country. Surprisingly, as I traveled and moved around, and found that out um, when I was under 21, you know, volunteering for them, getting, I don't know. Give not, an example, not give an example. innocent civilians, I'm say but <laughs> <laughs> uh, asking those who might be able to, to, you know, buy an innocent underage person alcohol or tobacco, <laughs> you know, that was a frequent uh, job of mine down there. Right, so where we grew up, it's a really small town. There's only, I don't know, three or four places where you can buy hard liquor or, you know, tobacco or something like that. Yeah, there was like one in 29 Palms, maybe two in Joshua Tree, and yeah. a few in Yucca Valley. <laughs> and so from what I know is that you would ask people of age to buy you stuff mm -hmm. and you being not of age, mm -hmm. they would buy it. Um, Word on the street <laughs> is that there was a dude that got busted like three times in the same day. Yeah, there was. <laughs> By you. <laughs> there was. Um, 
I don't know, I got really good with words at a young age, I guess. And I convinced them that I didn't know the cops and you know, they weren't around. <laughs> and every single time I gave him the money and he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. It reminds me of, uh, you seen Breaking Bad? Uh, a few episodes, yeah. <laughs> there's a, I think it's later in the show, but there's like an undercover sting that's going on. They're trying to catch this drug dealer guy mm -hmm. sitting on a bench. And then the scrawny little undercover dude comes up and he's like trying to buy. Mm -hmm. And he's like, nah, you're a cop. He's like, and then the, the cop is like, no, if you ask me if I'm a cop and I am legally required to tell you that I am. <laughs> And he's like, okay, are you a cop? He's like, nope. And he's like, and then he sells, he does the deal with him and then he arrests him. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. You a narc? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's That's pretty, pretty much legit. the same thing. I wish, I wish I knew about that program back whenever I was 17. That would have been dope. It was a, it was a good program <laughs> and it was fun, especially for, you know, a kid yeah. in Yucca Valley. So I'm assuming, because... Your dad was obviously a, had a full career as a police officer, but um, did you kind of know that that's the direction you're going to go in? No, not initially. Um, when I had first started it, it was my parents were like sports or volunteering. You pick one, and I had the coordination of a three year old girl. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, I guess I'll volunteer because that'll be cool. And I started it and I hated it, but it checked a box and then I exposed myself to it and gave it a chance and was like, ah, this might fit. Mm -hmm. And then it grew on me. You know, I, you get good at what you practice and I practiced it and I got good at it and eventually learned to love it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So moving from the desert up to Northwest United States. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy it at first or was it something that had to develop? I enjoyed the work. I didn't enjoy the move. Mm. And my mistake was I left community and to be alone. Yeah. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a way to develop relationships or, you know, I thought it would be pursuing my dream, but I was in training so I wasn't really getting to do the work. Right. And there was no one to come home to. Mm. And there was no one to call at 2 a.m. Is there is that community? You said Olympia, mm -hmm. Washington? Yeah. So is that a small community too? It's just... I think it's fairly big. It's probably the size of this county. Maybe a little bigger. Um, a lot of people with different viewpoints than mine for mm. the most part. And just a different culture over there. Yeah. It, yeah, for sure. Different than what we grew up with and different than what you would find here where I live now. How how was it dealing with the weather? Because I know cops are out and everything. Mm -hmm. How was it going out and you're getting pissed on all day? <laughs> over there, it was easier than over here. Really? Oh, yeah. Our conditions are harsher here. Why is that? We have harsher winters, mm. definitely. And over there, it's, you know, mild coastline rain all the time. Okay. And that's it. It's very depressing. Yeah. It, I mean, there was my first year there, it was like a month of sun 
and that was mm. it. The summer, the fall, the spring, the winter, no sun, period. So that part was like hard, and I didn't realize the effects of right not having vitamin D. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a big that's a big one. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially when you get twenty five, and they're like, "Hey, you should uh, like." Make sure you're healthy and stuff, because look at your blood work, and you're like, hmm, I guess we yeah. should take you're care of myself. You're looking a little translucent. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. So, I mean, did you? You were there for a while, so mm-hmm. I mean, and you're still here. So, walk us through what the process was, eventually making it to where you are now. Yeah, I started as what they call a cadet. Um, it's just you know, a trainee mm-hmm. basically over there. And they actually, the agency I worked for had two different academies. And honestly, the way they designed it was, I think, ideal for any law enforcement agency. It was very structured and uh, step-by-step. I think a lot. They have a higher success rate with the way they designed it. Okay. Not necessarily the way they run the agency, but how they introduce you to it. Mm-hmm. So the first academy is the basics of what every cop should know. Um, if you're not a cop, it pertains to things like uh, use of force when a cop has to go hands-on or use some kind of less lethal tool you know, to affect an arrest, case law. That's universal for around the country and just how they do things and they kind of um, introduce you to the culture. And then I was under 21, so what had happened is you get certified at the end of that first academy, and then if you're under 21 or they think that you need to uh, grow a little more as a person or Mm -hmm. in the profession, they send you and you're basically a cop at one of the state-owned facilities. So I checked the first box, and I was only 19, turning 20 at the time. So I went and worked at you know, one of their facilities for nine months and uh, extended my time even more over there. Like a corrections officer or like? No, you're basically a security guard. Okay. You, as a cop at, you know, a state um, like building. A hospital or government it could be building? A, like a, yeah, a government building okay. would be like it. Like their capital campus okay. or, yeah, got it. you know, the state works at, you know, this big building where they handle all the disability claims mm-hmm. or whatever, that okay. kind of thing. And then they had the second academy, which was more in-depth practical scenario side. You know, they teach you all the PowerPoints and classroom procedure that you have to go through. Um, you go through search and seizure case law, which is uh, for any cop around the country, at least for this part of the country, you know, it's like, basically fourth year law mm-hmm. as a 20 year old who's never been through law school because oh, you have right. to go and practice all this stuff yeah. on the streets. And then, you know, they go go through that for eight weeks and then the rest is just scenarios. It, was that like expedited law school or was it kind of just basic level? Like, was it super heavy law stuff that's like, if you don't know this, you fail and we're kicking you out kind of thing? Or was it... Yes and no. There's a lot of stuff you have to know. Um, As a cop, you have to be good at everything and hopefully fail at nothing. Right. So if you don't know the core stuff that they're teaching you there and it's not catching on, then Mm -hmm. they're probably going to drop you. Do you have any 
dudes that you've worked with that were that went to law school and then they decided to be a cop because they didn't want to be a lawyer? More more opposite. I have met more cops that were cops and then became lawyers. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple that have you know started like search and seizure companies out of it. Like going against what they used to do, like criminal defense type of stuff. Or? No, they'll become expert witnesses for law enforcement mm, to maybe okay. justify the actions in a particular case or um, as a training company. So you know, we're because the stuff you learn in the academy um, will always be guaranteed to change, right? Because yeah. there will always be a new case law from your circuit court from the federal court, state court, whatever. Right, okay. Especially now. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, we don't have to dime anybody out, but do you guys have issues with either in Washington, probably more Washington or Idaho, where DAs are not prosecuting? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I feel like that's the biggest hurdle. Mm-hmm. It makes your job almost pointless because it, you know, no one's ever getting punished for the crime that they commit. No, I mean, if you look at California, um, as a cop, they have, in my personal opinion, the best laws and search and seizure case law in the country. Like, the courts just come out with pretty reasonable decisions. Hmm. Uh, but... And the cops do, you know, as good a job as they can do with what they're given, but the court system fails them. Because you can do something, but if it's not followed through with, it has no power, right? Right. So the court is essentially the follow through and they don't, they aren't empowering the cops to do anything. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not just California, it's here in Idaho, it's in Washington, it's in conservative and liberal states. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think it's a population thing, the amount of crime that's being committed? Because they try to sell it to everybody as if like, you know, we have too much on our plate and we can't handle all this. But do you think it's that or more in their eyes, depending on whatever left or right leaning group is in there, they use that as the excuse to push an agenda where they might think like this one thing isn't as bad drug policy where you go to somewhere like Portland mm-hmm. and they're just like, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously like a certain leaning perspective. Yeah. Do you think it's more so politically oriented or do you think it's- I think a lot plays into it. I think at the end of the day, uh, I lean towards a more philosophical answer where I think it's fear and uh, misplaced motives. Mm-hmm. I think- you know, all the reasons you mentioned are excuses and reasons. Some sometimes it is valid, and which is, I mean, we don't have a choice. We don't have a say. Um, you know, we can't argue and say we think it should be one way or another because it's out of our hands as soon as our report is done. But as far as the decisions they make, when it is clearly the wrong decision and it's not good for the betterment of the public when we're trying to enforce laws, I think it's fear and you know whatever agenda your elected politician has. Yeah. Did you just hear about, I think it was, I think it was Portland, where if you try to remove or like 
tell homeless people to leave wherever they're at. It's called harassment and they can sue you. Really? Yeah. So they could just pop shop wherever and... Yeah, I don't understand that at yeah. all. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, <laughs> that's so stupid. That's ridiculous. It, yeah. It's like if you, I'm consider myself more in the middle because if you have a lot of laws and you're cracking down on the people, then nobody's going to want to live there. And if you have no laws, everybody can do what they want. Nobody's going to want to live there. Mm -hmm. But in the middle, if you have a good law enforcement um, system, including the courts and law enforcement agencies that have reasonable laws and can make a neighborhood better by enforcing it on the people that it needs to be enforced on, your community stays clean. Yeah. Well, I mean, I noticed just walking down, um, like downtown Coeur d'Alene, mm -hmm. and dude, it is clean. We were walking by like alleys. Yeah. And I'm used to looking down alleys and there's trash everywhere. Mm -hmm. The trash was actually in the dumpster. Yeah. Holy crap. And a lot of that has to do with the city too. Mm -hmm. Because the city takes pride in, you know, how they look and what they say they stand for. And they make the business owners keep up their end of the deal. So, I mean, the city puts a lot of work into making sure the business owners have customers and the business owners kind of repay that by making sure they have a good city for right. people to come see. Now, I mean, you can go anywhere and there's going to be homeless or druggies mm -hmm. or something like that. And they're here too. Yeah. But like in areas where there's less of those, I feel like they're just being moved most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so it, there's like this kind of false sense of security and stuff that the population has where they're like, oh, we, we moved to this place. It's great. There's no homeless here. But really, they're just going somewhere else. Yeah. So like, and then typically it's major cities and major mm -hmm. cities end up being the place where they have like the squatters rights or things like that. Mm -hmm. So you're just moving the problem from one place to another yeah. to a place where it eventually gets out of hand. Mm -hmm. So in Olympia... Because that was a that was a totally different ball game than where you are now. Oh yeah. Did you see a lot more in that area when it when it came to all that? Oh, it was filthy there. Yeah. It was filthy, and I mean, it really changed because it was about five years ago now. Um, it really changed after I left. When I was there, it was very similar to here. There wasn't a big difference between the two states, um, but. Now it's swung so far that people are fleeing and you can't drive through a city. I don't think you'll go a block without seeing it, excuse my crudeness, but be seeing it infested with homelessness. Because uh, one of the philosophies our boss uh, really pushes is if you permit it, uh, then you promote it. And they've permitted it. So right. naturally it's promoted. Yeah. And then it just gets out of hand. Mm -hmm. I feel like everybody just thinks if you just throw money at it, it just, it's going to fix it. And yeah. it's not the case. It's not. I think it was on like Rogan's podcast. I don't remember who he was talking to, but he was saying like they looked it up and it was like billions and billions of dollars that LA has thrown at the homeless issue mm -hmm. and it's gotten like tenfold worse. Really fix it. Yeah. 
so you got to ask yourself, where is all of this money going? Because mm-hmm. it's nonprofits, it's also tax dollars. You know, they, every city yeah. has a budget toward trying to clean up the city. But I mean, have you guys seen a, a decrease in funding for police departments up here? And then they just try to reappropriate mm. that money to. No, I'd say they're more reasonable here. It's a little more difficult here because you'll find a lot more ultra conservative. Mm. So they want to save as much money as possible. Uh, So I'd say it's difficult for, I think that's just Idaho in general, for agencies to be able to get the money that they need. Right. Um, But you also have real good cops in Idaho who care about the communities they're in because they usually live there. Um, So they're willing to be creative to find solutions that to the problem, you know, not saying that they don't care for the person they're dealing with, but they're trying to find the best solution for whoever they're contacting and the community they're in. Which is hard to do when someone's like hopped up on drugs or something or their brain's just fried from mm-hmm. whatever. It's got to be really difficult. I mean, have you had any like super rough experiences? As far as? Like dealing with homeless or druggies or something where it's like, it just sticks with you? You know, no, that part hasn't been hard at all. I'd say the more the calls for service that deal with the community, you know, like that kind of where we're forced to be inside the lives of people that need us here, I'd say those are the hardest. What's the, a, what's an example of that? Mm, I've, I've seen a couple people burn alive, um, bad domestics, you know, strangulations. I'd say those are the hardest because they're just more emotionally involved. Um, And not a lot of cops will admit that because, I mean, we're human too. Right. And most of us want to seem like we're big and tough and it doesn't affect us. But (laughs) believe it or not, they're made of the same bones, organs, spirit, and soul that I have. Right. Yeah, that's that's tough. You know, I've dealt with my fair share of, you know, post-traumatic stress or whatever you want to call it. But I remember uh, meeting a guy, he was a police officer up in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'd been through some really crazy stuff. And he, the program that we were in, it was geared toward military, mm-hmm. particularly like US military. But they had brought him in, you know, cause he was dealing with the same thing. And he, it was like, he felt, he's, if he hears this, he's gonna know I'm talking about him. So I'm not gonna say anything crazy, but, yeah. But he felt like he wasn't worthy to be around us. Like his thing was totally different. And I felt like he was having a hard time opening up about it. But I remember telling him like, it's almost worse to be a cop and deal with those things because you're like five, 10, 20 minutes drive from your house mm-hmm. dealing with that stuff. It's in your community. You got to get up and go to work the next day. You don't mm-hmm. have an entire ocean that you got to fly over whenever you go back home. Yeah. You know, it's like more personal to you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, a 20 year career of that could wear on you even more. Oh yeah. I mean, even after five years, mm-hmm. you feel it. It's, and I, first three or four years I had uh, over invested, I think, cause you get in it, you really love it or you really don't, you figure it out real quick. And you swing towards putting all your time and energy into what you love. So naturally you experience 
more of the good stuff and more of the bad stuff. And I think just with the amount of time that you put in it, you forget to feel the effects of everything you're experiencing. And then one day you turn 25 and it catches up with you real quick. Yeah, for sure, man. And I imagine like... Which is not old, it's young, but right. at 25 years That's old. That's a lot of life to deal with. I mean, most people don't deal with that kind of stuff on a daily basis. You know, no, I, it's hard to um, be that young and realize like mm, you spent four years of your life at work. Mm-hmm. Like, in the grand scheme of things, it might not be a lot of time, but that's a lot of moments and experiences that you missed out on. Right. And you're... 25 and you're dealing with health problems, for instance, mm-hmm. that... Well, I know like a lot of cops have don't. back problems from just sitting oh. in the car all the time with all that gear on mm-hmm. your belt and everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. No. I'm having back problems of my own. I have like a slip disc or whatever in my back mm-hmm. that when I was younger, I could just kind of push through it and like I had enough muscles and stuff to just kind of keep it in place. But now that I'm getting older, uh, yeah. It, it catches up to you. I'm only 30. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Woo, this is fun. You look 26, so. Oh, well, thank you. That's the first time I've heard that. The highest I've heard is 48. Somebody <laughs> said I look 48, but that was during a, I think a very taxing time in my life. <laughs> that happens. Um, so, you have a canine, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. How, what is all that about? I mean, that's, that's really cool, man. I've it always is. loved that. Um, it is. How did, how, did you, how did you get into that? Did you just apply for it or did sort of select you? Uh, it's a selection process. So you have to apply and test for it. Initially, when I had first started um, working with the agency I work for now around here, I had started doing what we call uh, decoying or coring, agitation, there's different terms for it. And you do, you know, you get in a bite suit or you muzzle fight or uh, you set dope out for, you know, working narcotics or you lay tracks for handlers. So you're essentially the errand boy, but you play a big part into making the dog successful. So we have dual purpose dogs up here. So patrol like bite work and narcotics, so sniffing, you know, the drugs that are illegal in the state. And mine can do a few other things. He can track humans. Um, He can do article and evidence searches. And, you know, we train him to do just about anything within those four categories, you know. But I had started as a decoy, and every week, you know, at canine training, just work on building the dogs or helping fix problems here or there, or help train new stuff, you know, learn from the handlers that have been doing it a long time. And then a spot had opened up a year ago. And uh, yeah, a year ago. And I had applied for it once before, didn't get it. And I applied again and put, you know, 10 times as much work into it and got it that time. And. A year on May 18th. Yeah, so May 18th of last year, I left and went to Tuscaloosa, Alabama and spent two and a half months there in canine training with a brand new dog for patrol and narcotic, narcotics and tracking. 
Were the dogs already kind of trained before you got there? And then it was all about just like making sure they mesh well with their owners? No, you can get a pre-trained dog. Um, you pay the vendor extra, obviously, because they're the trainers. Right. Um, you know, they buy the dogs from other breeders in Europe, bring them over here, and they have what's called breeders green dogs. Europe? Mm-hmm. Because I'm assuming they're Belgians. Yeah. So I can only think of like two or three kennels in the U.S. that actually breed. Really? Yeah. Why is that? It's more expensive here, and they just have certain lines in Europe that huh. they have naturally bred with, we call them drives. Okay. Um, with the drives that are ideal for law enforcement or military work that... You know, vendors have made relationships with, so they go over and get the ideal dogs for the work we do and bring them over here to sell them. That's wild. I didn't know that most of those dogs come from overseas. Mm -hmm. huh. So do you have to learn like other languages and stuff to? Just a few words. Okay. Um, I One of the dogs I know speaks French. Uh, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> He's, the dog is from... France, and when he came over here, uh, no, when he was in France, I think he was a part of the French sport ring over there. And then when he came over here, he had he was ideal for our work, and he had French commands. Mm -hmm. uh, my dog has German and Dutch commands. Other dogs are just Dutch or just German. It really depends on where they're from, and if their breeder did any sort of training with them. And, you know, that's kind of just ingrained into them. Mm -hmm. Do they kind of like, you know, you, you should stick with the language that they were like born with, like born listening to? It's ideal. Yeah. It's, it's just hard in my short experience to train something new on top of what they learned when they were youngest. Mm. Yeah. So he's got things he learned when my dog got things that he learned when he was, you know, a puppy or, you know, growing up into one and two years old because I got him at two years old that I had no idea about. And there was just quirks and different commands or things that none of us had known. We thought he was what we call green, completely untrained and he had been trained, you know, one or two commands here and there by the breeder. Yeah. So it's harder to change or fix those things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I feel like, you know, unless you're doing it for an extended career, when fit hits the shan, uh -huh. you would just be yelling at in English and forget, oh, I got to speak German or French. <laughs> what was that word? <laughs> Initially, yeah, absolutely, but... I mean, it's a career on top of a career. Yeah, that you have to do simultaneously, and it just becomes second. Because you guys have extra duties where you could get called from your normal area of operation over to that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, kind of like SWAT. Yeah, similar to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you work hand in hand with SWAT a lot of times? Yeah, we'll, we'll work together mm -hmm. um, as an asset okay. to them. Because I'm sure they have their own dogs too, right? So uh, the way um, the agencies around here work and even in 
Washington, I would assume, because we're not as big as the agencies you and I are used to right, in Southern yeah. California, where they have, you know, full-time everything. Yeah, San Bernardino County is from, like, nope. San Bernardino all the way to almost Vegas to the border with Arizona. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's massive. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. Largest county in the country. Mm -hmm. um, they have, you know, anything you want to do, you could do there full-time. So if you want to specialize in something, you could do nothing but focus on that. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, you so... I We have a lot of... I would say mid-sized agencies to small agencies where if you want to do something, that's great. Cool, you want to do that. You have to be good at these three other specialties that you're part of too. Right. Do you have any plans or you know aspirations to do other stuff like SWAT or, I don't know, bomb sniffing or that kind of stuff? Uh, I've thought about it. Um, I would... Continue canine probably because I love it. Yeah, and I love the work. I don't think I would join SWAT as being. Let me rephrase that. I don't think I would join SWAT with a canine handler because we're so small. You would have to learn two jobs. All right. Okay. So you might have to be an operator and then transition to be a canine handler. Right. Whereas I'd be more of an asset if I just I was a canine handler. Call me when you need me. I'll come every time. Mm -hmm. I don't care. And I'm really good at that job. So I'll work well with you guys. You know I'm not going to screw up. Mm -hmm. I'm not focused on, oh, I have to do this other stuff to make your SWAT operation successful. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But afterwards, I would like to pursue, you know, maybe going into training, teaching others, FTO, or promoting one day. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit slower lifestyle as you start getting older. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel that. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's busy enough as it is, and mm -hmm. time is uh, more valuable yeah. in this profession. So I, everyone gets into it, and they do everything all at once, and then they're burnt out. I would like to play the long game right. and you know, plan my steps out. And if God directs me a different way, then he does. But Yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty good way to look at it. I don't think a lot of people think that far in advance. No, they yeah. don't. Um, up here, I mean, I imagine there's kind of like a flush that happens when the winters roll in. There's been a massive mm -hmm. number of people moving here from out of the state, Yeah, from other states of California, kind of like what you guys did. Mm -hmm. um, how is that impacting the area? Is it positive or negative? I'd say both. It really depends on, it's so diverse, it's hard to say. And you have, all of our communities are basically meshed into one. Mm -hmm. So you could drive through the majority of the county or the metro of the county and feel like you never transitioned from one city to another, especially if you didn't see a sign because right. they practically don't exist here. Uh, and it would just feel like one huge city that's spread across, you know, 50 miles mm -hmm. from east to west. So, but the way it's all divided up, one city loves growth, another city doesn't. Like yeah. Rathdrum, most of them, you know, five-acre parcels. 
yeah. and spread out. There's Agriculture, only, homesteads, or something like mm-hmm. that. There's yeah. only a certain amount of people that can actually move there. Same with most of everything north of here. So you're not going to find a, as much growth as like the metropolitan area here, like Post Falls, Hayden, and Coeur d'Alene. And the people that do move here, at first, I think they were a lot more like-minded to us regular Idahoans. And I think it's kind of transitioning to... Conservative. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's really transitioning to um, a more diverse culture and people from New York, New Jersey, Washington, Oregon, California that are like, we'll move there because it doesn't suck as bad as we are yet. Yeah. Unknowingly, no part, half and half their fault and our fault for allowing it. Right. Just making it a little more like where they're from. Yeah, that's the thing that I kind of worry about with a lot of these small towns. I have some friends that live over in uh, near Kalispell or just outside of. A lot of people will move there um, because they'll see it and they'll be like, look how beautiful it is. This is great. And they get there. And then they tell all their friends to come and then it becomes the very thing that they left, not even politically, just as far as prices go. Because mm-hmm. anytime you have growth in a city, property taxes go up. Mm-hmm. Idaho doesn't have a state income or they have a state income tax. Yeah. Which I guess if it if you go against Texas, Texas doesn't have a state income tax, but their property taxes and sales taxes are insane. Mm-hmm. Their sales tax is more than California. So if you do the math, you're like, it's not really any different. Yeah. You know, it's it's actually, I feel like Texas in many ways is more expensive than California in that regard. But then you'll have these things where you're like, okay, well, the gas prices are lower in Texas. Mm-hmm. But if you look at between Idaho and Washington, it's a dollar cheaper here in Idaho than it is Washington. Right. Does Washington have a state income tax? No. Uh-uh. And you would think it would be the opposite because mm-hmm. they're, you know, at least Western Washington is more of the liberal policy side of it. Yeah. You know, it's just like, I feel like people think the grass is greener on the other side until they get here and then they tell all their friends to move here and then everything's more expensive again. Mm-hmm. I, um, having moved a lot now from place to place to place, even if you live in California, it could be the best place that you could ever live if you just decided. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably a good way to look at it. Yeah. You can move to Idaho, and most people that I meet that move here absolutely hate it. They give it a year, and they're like, this just ain't my thing. And from personal standpoint, that's their own fault because they didn't decide to water the grass right. and make it green. Yeah. I don't know. I would never move back to California, though. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. But I, if I didn't move here and put the work in on the front end to make the life I wanted and enjoy it and you know make my community the kind of community I wanted to live in, I'd probably be back there right now. Yeah. Generally speaking, I think there's a, there's a vibe up here that they want to preserve what's here. Mm-hmm. Like they really, they really care for. I get that same similar vibe in like Utah. Mm-hmm. You know, Utah gets really expensive. A lot of people move there, but it's another place where everything's really nice. It's taken care of. Yeah, there's not trash everywhere. People are 
nice to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just what you make of it. That's that's for sure. Um, do you have anywhere up here, or I should say, this will kind of lead into what your your new endeavor that you're working on. But are there places up here where? How am I trying to say this? Like you wouldn't necessarily live at, but where you think would be good for your personal finance thing? As far as... Like your demographic, I guess, is the best way to put it, of who you think would be your demographic to go, um, I don't don't know, to market toward. Mm, I gotcha. Um, You know, right now, Post Halls and Coeur d'Alene is probably the best just because that's where most of the people are are but my demographic as far as a business is concerned and like marketing too i love serving the small business owner that you know has already started their business has it going but just doesn't know how to grow it how to have it full time and not screw up their personal finances because that's super easy to do, mm-hmm. especially if you own your your own small business. Um, and that's like between twenty and forty, you know, not young enough to learn and listen and have a conversation, and not too old that they're so stubborn that you know, their yeah, their sure. way is right. Yeah, and the well, and the whole financial world is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, I hear a lot of times, uh, you know, <laughs> the rising interest rates. And so older generations, whenever they hear younger generations talk about rising interest rates, they're like, well, it was 12% back when I bought a house. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but when you bought a house, your house was 40 grand right? at 12%. Ours mm-hmm. is like 500 grand at yeah. 12%. It's a changing world, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, what... What do you think it is that drove you to want to get into that that business? Uh, kind of an interesting story. Um, so, my when my wife and I got married, we were both working full time, and circumstances changed, and she left her full time career. Um, turns out temporarily, but nonetheless, and at the time everything here had skyrocketed. And when I was, backtrack a little bit, when I was 20, 50 grand in debt, and I'm like, hmm, I don't know how this happened, but I went to college and bought an almost new truck and made all those decisions, and then a year later I was like, huh, I guess I'm responsible for my own decisions. <laughs> what a novel thought. <laughs> yeah. I guess I have to learn that lesson eventually. So. I, I figured it out. I learned how to work hard and manage my money and paid it off in a year. And I was fine with money and then I got married and everything changed. She left and I'm like, we're in the most expensive area in the country and I don't make that much as a cop. Mm -hmm. Like nothing. So I had to figure out real quick how to uh, be able to eat and pay the bills and be able to drive from point A to point B, you know, cover my bases. And then we didn't want to just stay here and not go on vacations or go out to dinner every once in a while and things like that. So I really had to dive deep on into how to handle personal finances. So I ended up doing that and got really, really good at it. 
you know, you get good at what you practice. And was there a system that you used? Uh, I, I listened to a lot of Dave Ramsey stuff. Um, super influential in my life. And I, a lot of systems that I have now, I really came up with on my own because, you know, as a cop, you have a set paycheck. You know, you're going to make what you're going to make. You can work over time, but it's not that. doesn't bring home that much money. Right. You know, you work so much and then they take most of it in taxes. So I really had to figure out how to make do with what we had, so I figured out, well, how do I divide up my money every month so it lasts longer? What can I cut so we can still enjoy life, cover the basics, and in six months, if we want to go on vacation, it's easy. You know, I pay for it cash and don't bring it home with me. So I developed systems, not necessarily Dave Ramsey systems, but things that made sense and were practical and easy to do every month. And so they just float us through the year. You know, we live on philosophies rather than systems, I guess, is a better way to put it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and everybody's like personal finance journey is different mm-hmm. based on your job or, you know, where your income's coming in from. Um, I, it's a similar for me in a sense. I kind of had like a, I don't know why I had this, but I had like this natural, understanding of saving money and preparing for the future. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, I kind of understood that. Like a lot of dudes that I serve with when we deployed, you know, you're getting extra pays, you're getting hazard pay, combat pay mm-hmm. on top of your thing. And then you're also not spending it while you're deployed yeah. and all that money's tax free. Mm-hmm. So not saying it's a lot of money, but for seven months I had like 15 grand mm-hmm. extra tax free that I got. Yeah. And I know a ton of dudes that immediately blew that money. Mm-hmm. I didn't touch that money. Yeah, I mean, I touched it for like a couple of things, but um, basically didn't use any of it. And when I ended up getting out of the military, I had like 15, 16 grand to just, you know, that was like my cushion mm-hmm. getting out. Yeah. And then life hits you and you realize how little amount of money that is. Mm-hmm. And so just regular bills take all that away. But I was missing the like the long term wealth building side of it, mm-hmm. and I think you know for a lot of people, personal finance is just discipline. Yes and no. I think what I have discovered is personal finance is emotional, and you make decisions about money based on not only what you're taught, but what you believe. And essentially what you believe about yourself. Um, One of the men that I study published a few books and um, did a study on Jews. Because he found that, I'm gonna get the number wrong, I think a third of the Forbes 400 are Jewish. He's like, that can't be a coincidence. So he studied them and uh, found out that, you know, all of the... You pull a Kanye West and start... (laughs) (laughs) You pull that, I'm shutting it down. Uh (laughs) He's like, what makes them successful? Like, why why is it so... Why is that group of people, right? um, you know, cover that big of a percentage in that section of the world? 
And the first thing he found out was they, they don't believe that wealth is evil. And I think it's kind of mm-hmm. bred into us as we grow up, you know, through media or how we talk about money with our friends or, you know, if you don't grow up with that much, you kind of become self-conscious of it, almost jealous. and Like a kind of, martyr kind of thing. Like the, Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, you don't do it consciously. It just right. kind of develops in you. Um, you know, you driving down the road, you see the guy in the nice car and you assume he did something bad to get it mm-hmm. or he evaded He's taxes. manipulating somebody or he's treating his employees like crap. Yep. Yeah. It's one of those negative thoughts in your head is now associated with money and, you know, what he did to be able to spend that money to get that thing. So if you study the Bible, God made money, right? So how is something God made going to be a bad thing? Yeah, well, he says to be a good steward of it. Exactly. So isn't the point to be a good steward, to be able to bless your family, take care of your family, and then bless others and take others? How can you do that if you believe money is evil? Right. He also gave you a brain. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't make sense to live your life where you have nothing all the time. Yeah. I feel like most resentment comes from people who are misguided in that in that way. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of more resentment in the a lot more resentment in the people that are lower income and more greed in the people that are higher higher income. Mm-hmm. And find those that not necessarily higher income but higher net worth. Okay, yeah. That's probably a better way to put that. Have a better view of money and the ability to be generous. Yeah. And that was one of the other things that he uh, noted in his book. He calls it acting rich. Mm-hmm. Just the ability, even if it's not with money or maybe it's with your time or services, you know, God says throughout his word to tithe 10%, right? And as just a personal belief, pastors, if you listen, forgive me. It's, <laughs> Ignore it, don't call me. <laughs> um, you know, tie 10% to your local church. And if you read further through his word, he says that, you know, that means to take care of the widows and the fatherless, right? So I don't think that the church means a building with a name on it that a bunch of people go to. Mm-hmm. I think it means a group of people with, you know, similar beliefs or faith that do what God's called them to do through his word. Yeah, and it's not like one or the other. Mm-hmm. It, it's, you know, but I agree with you. You know, like, what about the people that don't have a good church to go to? They live in a small community and the church, maybe the church is bad, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. But they might have money. They could be the thing that helps the community. Mm-hmm. I look at it too from like being a good steward and helping the community, looking at it from a economic standpoint, the whole purpose of owning a business is to solve a problem in the community. Mm -hmm. And the only way you do that is by being profitable and growing the business and solving the problems in the community. So, and that's a big reason. um, Initially it started with just personal finance because I was passionate about that. I was very good at, you know, the numbers and tying the emotions to it and the decisions we make so that it fixed 
the checking account. It wasn't necessarily what you did with the money, it was the decisions you made that ultimately in six months affected the checking account. I found that business owners, uh, the decisions they make, same thing, are tied to what they believe. And that's so important in business because when, let's say, you and I have a business, right? Or you're a customer, I'm a business owner. And you come in, you want a service or a good. It's not going to be for free. It takes away the value of that thing, right? Right. And if you want it, you want to give me what is called certificates of appreciation, which is green pieces of paper with the president's faces on them. Mm -hmm. Saying that this service or good that I'm giving you is good, it's valuable, it's worth this much, you've decided and agreed that it's worth this much. It's an investment for you, essentially. And I have now made money. I've increased my worth. I feel good now that I've done something to help someone else. So we've created this whole circle called an economy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of funny that you say that the the, the negative emotion attached with looking at someone that has more than you and being like, they must have done something bad. I find that even in myself, when trying to make money off of something that I do, mm -hmm. I'll lowball myself because I, it's like, I want that person to have this product and be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. But you kind of, like you said, it like decreases the value of what you're offering. Yeah. You can't discount yourself and what you're offering. Mm -hmm. Like, don't try to sell garbage. Right. But like, if you really put all of it into it, it's worth something to you. So somebody will pay for it. Absolutely. And uh, when I coach small business owners and we talk and I look at their products and we talk about it, part of it is you have to truly believe that, you know, your why is... The reason that you're doing this, mm -hmm. the problem you're solving, or yep. however it's that the looks, the problem you're solving. That's just the package that comes in. That's what they're buying. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to buy it unless it's super clear. And a lot of things right. have to be clear. What problem you solve? What you're offering? How's it going to make my life better? And what's the price? They have to. The price is yeah. The price is honestly like the least important thing. Yeah. Because if you're solving everything that they need. Mm -hmm. they'll pay you for it. Yeah, I think people think that they're in competition with more people than they actually are. Absolutely. So like they think, well, my competitors are going to go, they're going to lowball and they're going to steal all my customers. It's like if you're offering something good, the reputation is going to get out there and you'll get more business, even if you have a higher price. Mm -hmm. And if you have competitors, what's that mean in business? Right. It means that there's a market for it and there's room for you too. Mm-hmm. You have a different way of offering it. You have a maybe slightly different solution that might fit better for this particular demographic of people. Who's to say that you can't do it just because they're doing something else? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you, um, um, I mean, I, how long have you been doing this? Uh, as So I've been doing it for a while, but six months full time. Okay. On top of my on top full -time of your full time job. job. Yep. Yeah. Got it. Is there? Um, did some of that inspiration to start this come from working maybe with lower income people, or I uh, mean, or dealing with them? I guess as a cop. It actually came from my wife. Oh. So, second part of the story 
um, from earlier is when we were figuring out our personal finances because our income cut in half instantly. You know, we had savings and we were okay with money. Um, and she had a business and we were like, I guess, you know, she's got some more free time now. I'm pretty okay with money. Let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. So two, two, three years ago now, after she left, we grew the business. Like it felt overnight, but no one's an overnight success until 10 years later when someone says <laughs> overnight success. Um, so we grew the business and uh, what, six months, maybe a little longer than that. She was like, hey, you're pretty good at this stuff. You could probably help other people with them. Like, might be a good service to offer to others. Yeah. So, you know, I can't help the corporate business owners because I've never been a corporate business owner, but I have been a small business owner. Mm-hmm. I can help with leadership and building a team because I've done that in law enforcement and here. I can help with products and, you know, a little bit of marketing and how do you scale your business in an ethical way? How do you sell so it doesn't feel shitty? Excuse me. It's okay. I don't care. I don't know if, yeah, no, I don't care. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've, I've had similar things with that too, um, where people have, you know, said similar things about how I could probably do the same thing as you. Um, but I, it's, it's people like you that I want to connect with others. I, mm-hmm. I want to be more of the middleman. Mm-hmm. I think- like I, you know, in doing this podcast, getting it out there, and then some of the other stuff that I plan on doing business-wise, I want to be the thing that protects the whole enigma of mm-hmm. small business in the country. Yeah, so you know, I- and so like, because we're not the only people that do this. This isn't some revolutionary idea to no. manage your money well. No. There's other people out there that do it, but in order for our communities to build, we have to work together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, I don't know, it's just a, it's a whole economy that needs to thrive. And we kind of bastardize all of the areas of the economy to the point where people fail either because they're, a lot of times it's the finances of the company, but it could be something as simple as just like bad management Mm -hmm. or like little things that make the whole company fall or not wanting to work with others, thinking that, there's too much competition. How could I ever raise my prices? Mm-hmm. You know, the people that I go for, they don't, they can't afford it. So I can't. And it's honestly, it's a detriment to the entire small business community. It is. And they, I mean, I said it before, I'll say it again. They go hand in hand so much because if your personal finances aren't in order, then you're way less likely um, to either pay back what you've put on a credit card that you might spend at a small business or go to a small business and be like, "Mm, I can't really support them because I don't have the money because my finances is in order. That hurts the small business, right? Right. And then these small business owners have the same thing. Their personal finances are out of whack because of what they believe about money. It affects their business now. So they're like, I'll sell my product for as cheap as somebody will buy it for. Mm-hmm. Now they're hurting their business and it creates this whole big thing when small business was was meant to be the backbone of our entire country. Right. Of 
the U.S. economy. That was yeah. supposed to be it. You know, yeah. us supporting one another. The American dream was being able to support yourself and your family mm -hmm. however you see fit. And we got lost along the way. Yeah. And we thought it was okay to borrow for everything yeah. and never pay it back. Yeah. And yeah. we thought it was okay to start a business but then treat people poorly so we mm -hmm. can't hire anybody and not have yeah. a clear uh, mission and a clear problem that we solve. Mm -hmm. You know, unknowingly, because most of us weren't taught, but we also never went out and learned. So we're not doing any good for anybody. Yeah, what would your advice be for someone just getting started and like maybe they have a skill or something to offer, but the money, the like liquid cash money is non-existent. What, what do you think would be the best solution for that? Because that's most people. Most people yeah. are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. They're working a job where they're like, man, I don't know, maybe they work in tech or something right now. They can't get another tech job, but they mm -hmm. hate their life at their job. Yeah. And now they're like, I can take this, this skill that I have and I can start my own business with it, but I just mm -hmm. don't have liquid money. What would you say? Uh, move at the speed of cash. What's that mean? Almost always, I think with every business idea, um, if you start big, then you will fail big. It's like a tree. Um, I heard, I actually found this out about trees the other day and I'm going to use it. So trees that grow exponentially fast, the inside of them is actually the weakest trees you will ever find. But the trees that take a thousand years to grow or a hundred years to grow, and they're eventually the biggest trees around with the toughest bark, with the most, I think they call them O-rings in the middle or something like that. Tree rings, whatever. Yeah. Right? They're the strongest. They never fall down in a storm. So almost every business idea I've ever heard or seen, you can always start small and you can always use that cash and save it, especially if you have a full-time job and you're looking to get out of it. You can use that money as seed money. Mm-hmm. Why would you go and get a line of credit? You're going to be spending the next five years of business trying to pay that back. And you're going to be miserable for doing so. And then you're going to be even in even more debt because of the interest rates and they're going to sell your loan or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like I started my business with nothing. I paid, you know, a couple thousand dollars cash that we had saved up for because it was something intentional that we did. Right. I know the reasons why I make decisions with my money. And it has grown that much faster even. It was super slow at the start, but I didn't take out a loan. Right. Yeah, and there's something I've hit on before too is like, um, like for what I'm doing, like I got this podcast thing and I've invested money into it. Um, but part of being an entrepreneur is knowing that it's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. The whole biting off more you can chew thing could be the, the end of your business. And I think for most people, when that first couple years where it's really hard, why they end up failing is because they had big aspirations of what they wanted. And they're like, man, this is just like, this is going to work out like immediately. Yeah. And it doesn't because you hit that, like nobody knows who you are. Mm -hmm. You're creating something out of nothing. Yeah. You know, even if you put the greatest ad campaign on Facebook, 
you don't have brand recognition versus somebody else. No, I mean, I can relate it to the small business in a small community that we have here. And ads and marketing, they are great and they work for people, you know, big companies, but small town people want small town stuff. Yeah. We all support small businesses here. So the more people you know, you don't have to pay for your marketing. You have to create relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's important. That's honestly what brings your more loyal fan base. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, that being said, we are moving into a more digital world. Yeah. And even in local communities, people are on their phones. Mm -hmm. So there is like, I would say, and I've talked to my girlfriend, she works in marketing and stuff, SEO. Mm. Um, like how you build your website, how it's worded and all that stuff and how mm -hmm. it shows up in Google when people yeah. search for it. That's actually probably more important than how you advertise on Instagram or something. Mm -hmm. Even though people are on Instagram, most of the time when they're like, I need a plumber, mm -hmm. they don't go to Instagram to find a plumber in their area. They go on Google right. and how you build your website and things like that. So we are moving into a digital world where you should be doing these things. But when it when push comes to shove, whether you're digital or not, there's certain things that people look for. If you're going into brick and mortar, the, you're not talking to the owner right away, typically. Mm -hmm. You're talking to one of their employees. Yeah. So everything that every decision that the owner makes will trickle down into their employees. And if they're treating them well, or if they're not, or they're paying them well, that will trickle into the service that's provided or you know the customer service. Um, when it comes to online business, it's literally the same thing. How fast was shipping? Mm -hmm. Like how prompt were they with answering my questions about things? Um, you know, if there was any problems, did they take care of them? Did they take care of me or did they give me problems? Yeah, It's the same thing, it's just in a digital form. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the financial aspect of it, I, I see a lot of businesses get caught up on is they're wanting to be the discount store. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, they, if you look at any business that starts to put out discounts all the time, 20% off, 30, 40, 50, 60% discount on things, that business is about to fail. Yeah. Because they have lost touch with their customers. They don't know what their customers want. And they think the best way to do it is to lower their prices to get them in. Yeah. And they're losing that personal aspect of, of things. You can look at Bed Bath & Beyond's going under, right? They're like, bring in your coupons, 60%, 70% off. Like, here, just take it. Mm -hmm. You know, Bud Light right now. <laughs> well, they went under for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. But Costco's just get, like giving them the, they're not making them buy it. They're just like, sell it for whatever you can. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're losing, it, they're losing touch with their customer base. That loyalty that they thought that they had, they're trying to push something else that people don't actually want. They're not really solving the problem in the world. And, and so they, they lose that. But that's why I've said local, like interacting more locally, which is the mm -hmm. real economy. Yeah. Um, that's what saves the community. So whether it is big online business or you know a small brick and mortar shop or like me, I work off of referrals and word of mouth. And that's the way I designed it to mm -hmm. be because I... I like to have relationships right. with my clients. I don't I don't need a hundred clients that I can serve, you know, one one hundredth 
of my time goes to one person. I want 100% of my time to go to maybe spread across 10 to 15 people at any given time. Sure. But whenever you're marketing to someone, no matter what kind of business you have, you want to be able to invite them into a story where you're guiding them to your product that serves as a solution to their problem. So that's how you want to create your website. That's how you want to uh, word your business card or your pamphlet. That's how you want to speak to someone who walks in the door. That's how you want to answer the phone and answer their questions. It's not focusing on, well, you know, if I spend this much money on Facebook ads and I'm going to get this amount of return. No, if you invite customers into a story and maybe you get it on a platform where the people that you're looking for will see it, yeah, you'll probably get customers that way. Probably quality customers, qualified right. customers. Yeah, I mean, it's just different business models. Like Amazon is their business model. If you would ask Jeff Bezos what Amazon was going to turn into, I guarantee you didn't think that it was going to be what it is now. No. They provide an amazing service, mm-hmm. same day shipping or same day delivery. Like the products are cheap and they work with small business everywhere. Like it's a, it's hard to argue against what they've built. Mm-hmm. And then you look at like some of their business practices in the back end and you're like, well, how are they able to make it so cheap and mm-hmm. all this stuff and you, all these horror stories about how they treat their employees and everything. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, maybe the user experience is like, wow, this is amazing. But there's like a disconnect, like we're forgetting that we're human uh-huh. in this like endless effort to make everything robotic and everything's a number on a spreadsheet. Yep. Everybody generally understands like, man, it feels like we're just, it, we have social media, we're supposed to be connected and we're, le- we're less connected now than we used to be. Uh-huh. There's a human element to this. Absolutely. And that's the why behind my business. I named it Finding Hope, partly because I saw it on a sign on the side of the road. I'm like, that sounds good. And I also knew Look it I, up. Like, yep. Does somebody else already have Finding Hope? Yeah. And I had to think about it. And I was up to one in the morning one night thinking about it. And it just clicked, whether it was God or something in me or an experience I had that, you know, came back to me. Um, that verse about now all that's left is faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I'm like, everybody talks about love. Uh, but the fact that hope was even mentioned as a sister to love is got to be pretty important. And even the hope that we can connect as humans again through, you know, small business in my case is fantastic. Like if I can just be one voice to a few people, think about how that would spread. Now there's a few more people that will be able to work only 40 hours a week and go connect with their families because their personal finances are in order. There's a few more people that will have fantastic running businesses and great teams that are healthy and they can all go connect with their families and friends on the evenings and weekends all because of one and it's not just me like I think it's God through me Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's important 
Yeah. And if we forget that as a community, especially as a nation, if there are fewer and fewer of us, it'll be harder and harder for what we have to continue. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and we live in a society now where people have less and less money these days, at least Uh liquid cash these days. Most people don't understand the difference between an asset and a liability. Uh And I don't want people to think when we say like, I, I don't want people to think loans are the devil because there is a certain system that's been built where you can you can use loans. Mm-hmm. It's the good steward discipline of what you do with that once you have it. Yeah, you know, I, there's something I, you know. I've I've listened to Dave Ramsey quite a bit, and it, there's some things that he says that I'm like, I know he knows how the world works, yeah. but his audience is people that just don't understand money. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything. They don't have the discipline. They don't know anything about money, and that's typically his audience. But if you you look at how he runs his business. He knows how loans and everything work. He's been in the mortgage industry. He's got tenants. He knows how that works. And so he'll get a bad rap for not knowing what he's talking about or he's misleading people. I think if you're talking about wealth building after you figured out how money works, I think that's a different conversation that he yeah. would have with people. Absolutely. You know, because that's a whole different ballgame. No mm-hmm. one is just working a nine to five job. No minimum wage and is going to pay for a $500,000 house. And it's not that like the house is too much. It's like, that's what they are right now. Yeah. You know, like no one's dropping that money. You need a loan to do it, but there's a correct way to do it. Absolutely. And that's um, one of the philosophies that I would go through with someone, especially in personal finance is um, you have the ass to cover the liability. Yeah. Because let's say you have a rental that you owe 500000 on and um, you have to sell it for whatever reason, emergency. You need the money and you owe 340 on it. You can't cover that. Yeah, if you're, the economy is going down like it is right now, mm-hmm. people getting in over their, their head. Yeah, that's not worth it. Right. How does that make sense? Mm-hmm. The math doesn't sell it, pay it off, and use the cash to pay down your liability and then do it the smart way next time. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting a loan for a house if you do it wisely. Yeah. 30 year fixed. Yeah, fixed, fixed rate. Fixed, fixed is rate. important. Fixed rate. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a thing now. I typically don't listen to this dude because I feel like he's kind of a BS artist. But Grant Cardone, um, I've have you ever heard of him? I've heard of him. I've, okay, the few clips I've heard have been like, "You sound kind of sleazy." That's yeah. what he sounds like. I mean, he. I mean, dude, he he knows what he's talking about. He's got like a billion dollar company or something. Like he mm-hmm. he's done the thing, but. He said something that I thought was really interesting, um, and I don't know how true this is. He said that a lot of the big hedge funds like Vanguard and Black Blackstone and you know mm-hmm. all these, they got in like 2020 when real estate, when the interest rates were real low, everybody was being told, you got to get in now. You got to mm-hmm. get in now um, because interest rates are going to go up. You got to get in now. I don't think even those hedge funds knew 
what the Federal Reserve and the Treasury all working together were gonna do with interest rates and how high they were gonna send them. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't make sense to me. Basically what he said was that they bought all of this property, residential property, they bought a bunch of commercial property, mm -hmm. um, and they bought it on adjustable rate loans. And like probably collectively, probably trillions of dollars of all of this across yeah. the country. when. Interest rates were low and they got adjustable rates. So that means they're even lower than what everybody else is paying. Because mm -hmm. it's typically how it is. It's the adjustable rate is like get you in the door. It's interest rates are 2%, adjustable rates 1.5, 1%. It's usually how it is. But then when it adjusts and interest rates hit, the fixed rate doesn't move. Yep. The adjustable rates go soaring. Mm -hmm. And now that they've raised interest rates, higher and higher and higher, those things are really going to hit all of these hedge funds. Yeah. He was saying from an investor standpoint, it's really good if you have liquid cash or you have the ability to buy these products when everything comes crashing down mm. because you'll get it for dirt cheap because they're going to have to offload all of this stuff mm -hmm. and, and recapitalize. Yeah. I always thought that was interesting, but that's something that like, personal finance doesn't ever get into. They don't get into the investment side of things. Yeah, and that's hard. And uh, the more I, I've learned about it, especially over the past few months, it has a lot to do with the securities license of being able to mm -hmm. advise on those types of things. Right. So I can suggest to people like, hey, I think this is wise. Right. Um, but I can't ever tell anybody like, those are the investments you should do. Yeah. 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 No, I I get that. And I think um there there's just two different buckets. There's mm -hmm. you know, what you're mostly going after is like let's b break it down to basics. Like and you know, I've I have helped some people with their personal finances and it almost takes an outside perspective a lot of times because they're so like, oh my gosh, all this debt. Yep. It takes an outside perspective to look at it and be like okay, well, this isn't really as bad as uh -huh. it looks. Like these are the steps you need. Yeah. And it'll just open up for them. Just like, I know what I'm talking about. Just trust me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big part of it. And um, as far as investments are concerned, when I talk to people about it, I just want them to be able to do it and not, uh, not have to worry about paying f for food and gas while they're doing that. Right. Like take care of you and your wife first and then, you know, worry about that stuff. Sure. You guys have to eat tonight before you have to retire in 10 years. Yeah. So let's take care of this. Let's get rid of the debt. And then you want to go buy investment properties? Cool. Let's look at your options for that. Yeah. Let's figure out the number that you need and how we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, there was a time when I first got out of the military, um, I was having trouble getting hired anywhere and mm -hmm. just find a job because I had Marine Corps and they're like, cool, how's Afghanistan? What else do you have to offer us? Mm -hmm. and I didn't have anything. Yeah. So like I got passed up for jobs or any jobs that I was qualified for. It was like basically no money. Mm -hmm. I worked at Bass Pro for, I think it was like nine bucks an hour and it was a part-time gig and then they cut our hours. So it was costing me more to get to work than it was to actually work there. And so there was a point in my life where I had to make a decision. Do I want the money, the extra money that I have to go toward gas to a job interview or to feed myself for a few days? Mm -hmm. 
And so it was like, I mean, that was a, that sucks. Yeah. It sucks to be there. And I think what sucks to know is that there's a lot of people that are, have been there for years. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's hard from, unless you got, unless you're stubborn like I was and was like, this is not, I am not doing this. It takes an outside voice to look at the situation and be like, it's not that hard. Just do these things and you'll be able to pull yourself out of it. Yeah. I mean, how many people have you been able to, to help doing this business so far? Yeah, I mean, I'll just take the six month period um, for, I guess, like part time slash full time guy like me. Typical is, you know, 10 a month or so, and I've probably helped around 30. 30 people. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's not yeah. bad for six months. No. Some of it's classes, some of it's personal, some of it's business. Do uh, I know like some of the people probably are, do you go for mostly people that are dirt poor and showing them how to do it? Or do you go for people that have kind of a business or they have extra money to be able to pay you for what you do? That's a big part of it. Um, when I, when somebody and myself work together, there has to be an investment so that they know that they're getting something right. valuable. They have to have some skin in the game. Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it. So I don't care where they're at financially. Sure. Like they could be living paycheck to paycheck. That's fine. I'll, Your formula so, doesn't really yeah. change. It's, the yeah. Formula doesn't change. The solution doesn't change for it. You just have to be willing to put in the work right. to get the solution. I enjoy working with the business owners and um, people who are kind of like in similar situations as me because I speak their language. Sure. Like I was in that spot so I can relate to them more easily. But honestly, the people in the worst situations have been those in higher income uh, status, I guess. They have dug a hole so deep so quickly because they had the means to, and they're like, I don't know what to do now because right. I got nothing left. Yeah, and you know, I think in a lot of that happens ironically in an economy that's doing really well mm-hmm. because it's that, uh, what do you call it, the hot hand fallacy where things are like in basketball. You got oh, a yeah. dude that makes one shot, then he makes another one, then he makes another one, and you're like, there's mm-hmm. no way he's missing. Yeah. Um, that happens with people borrowing money mm-hmm. or maybe they make a little bit riskier of a decision because like the payout's going to be better and they don't see the whole world crashing down. Look at 2008. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you could even more recent, you can look at some of the banking issues that have happened recently. Yeah. Um, there's like seven bike banks or something that have gone under or something now. Mm-hmm. The largest banking collapse in U.S. history yeah, surpassed yeah. 2008. It's almost all the more reason for your business to move at the speed of cash. Right. Um, I do want to get into some of the uh, like bigger issues, the central bank issues into more cryptocurrency, digital currency stuff. Um, are you comfortable talking about some of that stuff? We can talk That's about it. I don't know. Uh, I'm not the most educated guy on all of that, on stuff. All that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can Ask talk me about anything. it. But first, I gotta, I gotta pee. You're fine. <laughs> okay. And we're back. So I want to get into the FedNow program that the Federal Reserve has 
they announced and are supposed to be releasing in July. Um, I don't know if it's a net positive or negative for small business in terms of profitability and being able to survive. I think there's going to be a flush of businesses in general, um, most of which started business kind of in an economy that was doing great. And then they just kind of been eking their way by in the last few years and are just like, they're, they're just waiting for a collapse to happen before they fail. There's going to be a flush of some kind. But on the back end of that, if this thing gets released, I know I just kind of made you aware of it, but how do you see, I guess for humanity, something like that starting where they're able to track everything that you... I think it really depends on a, where you are personally. I could see those who are you know, secure financially and have a liquid, comfortable liquid emergency fund um, and are able to pay cash. Like if it was a concern for them, then they'd be like, I'm just not going to use it. Right. Like it's not a big deal. Yeah. And then those who are not in a good financial situation will kind of be bound by it mm-hmm. and almost uh, slave to the evil that they have to have just because. Just to stay in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I see like, it almost feels like, I've heard people say this, but it's more in like the, this is what could be. It's almost like they're consolidating, getting rid of all of these smaller banks and consolidating it into like a few major ones. Mm-hmm. So like take uh, one Republic bank that just collapsed, the government seized it and then they put it up for auction. Mm-hmm. Instead, they gave $50 billion to JP Morgan to buy it. Hmm. Instead of giving that $50 billion to one Republic bank to bail them out, they gave it to another big bank to buy that. And they're buying all these bad loans. Like all that stuff still exists. It's just being bought and serviced by another provider, Mm -hmm. JP Morgan. It almost feels like the government and the Federal Reserve are trying to consolidate all of the banking power to a small handful of banks. And then at some point, those loans are going to go bust and those big banks are going to go bust. Mm -hmm. Who saves them at that point? And my biggest question has always been, you know, what replaces the dollar if it truly goes bust? Mm -hmm. What replaces that? And the Fed now thing seems to be the thing that they're trying to replace it with. Where we're moving from this traditional banking system you know, where it takes days or weeks for a transaction to go through and we're moving to a digital currency. Mm -hmm. The SEC hasn't come out with decisions on what's a security versus what's a currency. They haven't figured that out yet. Mm -hmm. And because small business uses the dollar, it's almost like everybody's going to get forced into this thing whether they want to or not. Mm -hmm. And... If you're wanting to be a business in the United States and that's a reality that we're going to have to face where we have this digital currency that is you pay to the Federal Reserve like when you buy something that money goes straight to the Federal Reserve and then to the person that you buy it and they track it they see if they approve it is it gun parts is it you know whatever if they have that control that affects the small business right so like 
I almost like sometimes I feel like I talk about this stuff and beat my head against the wall because it's like there's such big things at play here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if small business is going to survive this. Mm-hmm. And it's happening like July, they're releasing it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it's in full. That's like the beta test. Right. Because I don't think we're actually there yet to where it's like 100%. This is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Huh. I... I dropped a bomb on you. Now you're having to think. <laughs> no, I'm thinking. I want to give you as educated of an answer as I can give. I guess my challenge to that almost would be um, is there still small business in places like Britain? Why, why is that? What do you mean? I, I would think of things like um, Brexit, you know? Okay. They thought it was the end of the world mm-hmm. at that time too. And a big event. I'm just comparing like a big event to big event economically. And... Um, just looking at the past to kind of tell the future, like every time there was a big event economically throughout our history, especially in America, small business always survived or always found a way to. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Is not all of them. No, not but, all of them. But the ones like the real entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. the one who were in this for the right reasons in the beginning. Yeah. That we're forward thinking they're always going to manage to find a way to make it work. That's mm-hmm. the entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And I don't, maybe it's the optimist in me. Mm-hmm. I don't think like a majority of this country is a lot like you and me. And I don't think a majority of us will let the few, it might take some fails and it might take a while, but I don't think in the end, will let a few ruin this massive project that we started Mm -hmm. 200 years ago. Yeah, I would hope so. Would you? No, but like where would you start to fix that? That's the entrepreneur. Right. That has to figure that out, right? See, and that's where I think like if we're talking, we have to talk worst case scenario, this thing goes through and there's half the country or more that says, no, we're not doing that. Mm Mm-hmm but the dollar's still worth nothing. Mm-hmm. So what replaces the dollar for the side that doesn't want to do digital currencies? Do we create our own currency? And that. if so, what do we use? Do we use Bitcoin? <laughs> right. Like, what do we, you know what I mean? You it's know? like, if this thing is coming down, what's going to replace the current system? You know, that I don't know. It, it would, I would compare it to like, okay, they want, they're basically creating a federal Bitcoin. From the sounds of it, like I don't. I, I, I wouldn't even call it a Bitcoin because, like, there are, I mean, there's all kinds of different blockchain technologies. I wouldn't even call it a Bitcoin because it's a digital Bitcoin dollar. is is decentralized, and there's a finite number of them. Mm-hmm. So, as long as if if everybody just decided to adopt Bitcoin and that's what we used, the value of Bitcoin is skyrocketing mm-hmm. just because. That's just how it is. I, I think it's the perfect currency. They just need to work on the utility of it. The issue is that the central banks and central planners of the world, that is not how they operated the world ever. Mm-hmm. They have to control it. The central bank digital currency with FedNow and other programs like it around the world, that's the central bank's way of trying to get in there and maintain control in a digital world. Mm-hmm. But the dollar's still coming down. Yeah. So... 
that's my thing is like if we if our value system and what we used to pay for things if we're not going to get totally into the world and say we're going back to trading stuff one for one like the Indians did it or something right if we're not going to go that far into into the world scenario what is it that replaces the dollar mm-hmm. and it seems like there's more people I mean you look at the last few years there's more people that are willing to go along with whatever the next thing is yeah whether it's masks or vaccines or you know what media is saying you know what beer to drink if they're so focused on that stuff and they're not focused on this financial thing one day they're going to wake up and the dollar's going to be worthless but the government's going to come and say oh but it's okay because we have this other thing that's backing it now mm-hmm. and look at all the ways that this is safe while right. not telling them the cons of having that system. Mm-hmm. I think there's more people that are going to just buy into that. They might not even say anything. Right. You know, if it's already worthless, they just come out and say, yeah, just use the dollar. It's all mm-hmm. good. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's like, I feel like a conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, returning the frogs gay, like all, <laughs> all of that stuff, but. I don't think they're bad things to think about. I think I would also realize that hopefully the fail-safes that they put in place when we created this country work in cases like that. I don't know. I don't think there's fail-safes for that kind of thing. No, well, no one's ever experienced yeah, I mean, that they, kind of thing. They didn't even have electricity when they wrote the Constitution yet. Mm-hmm. So thinking of a digital currency, the word digital wasn't even real. Yeah, I would hope that they would use a system of checks and balances. So. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But if this thing, I mean, if this happens, like, it's going to change the way people do business mm-hmm. because it's going to be instant. I would think it would be. It's going to change loans. Yeah. If there is even loans. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could change everything because, you know, what What do you do? Like, everything's in dollars. There's so much debt. Part of the reason why things collapse is because they're over leveraged. Mm-hmm. It's all loans. It's like what you're saying. Like, don't bite off more than you can chew here. Like, grow at the speed of money. Yeah. That's not how the economy is right now. Right. So there's going to be a big dump. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't those that are in the position of being as independent as they could be True. They, they moved at the speed of cash. Right. They have no liability to anyone. Wouldn't they be the safe ones? Yeah, I think they're actually probably the ones also that are the most uh, level-headed or clear-minded, however mm-hmm. you want to say it, when the world comes crashing down. Yeah. Because every time there's like a collapse of something, opportunity shows up. It mm-hmm. just happens that way. That's just how it is. Um, the hope thing that you're talking about there is that all the time and the real entrepreneurs are going to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just always am concerned about that collapse. What the time from here to here when things are really bad, Yeah. how bad do they get and is it the end of small business to where a corporation comes in and swoops in and solves everybody's problems? If that's the agenda that's being pushed and they have the control over banks, mm-hmm. central banks, the ones that decide everything basically, um, Small business, they might be able to survive, but are they going to be able to thrive in that kind of world? I don't think it'd be the end of small business. No? No. I think most of us, at least for me personally, um, small business helps support small business and 
local banks would are essentially small businesses. Right. And um, I don't see, I see support and an outpouring of like human connection and growing each other and the opportunity, at least in communities like I'm in now. Mm -hmm. Big cities, I don't know. Yeah, I do notice out here there's a lot more mom and pop shops than there are big mm -hmm. chains, yeah. which is I awesome. Mean, we've had, there have been instances where uh, big chains have moved in and the community literally rejected it, even if it was good, yeah. like a good business or it's a product. They better people, not do that with In-N-Out. Yeah. I hear In-N-Out's coming up here. They better I not do hope that. they do. I haven't had it in four years. I have one right across the street from I where I live. I should shoot you. <laughs> My gosh. <laughs> They talk about it at work every single week, and I <laughs> just want to bang my head against a brick wall. Yeah, I think in and even though In and Out is in multiple places now, they're still technically a smaller business. I yeah, mean, I'm gonna say they're a small business so that they come here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In and Out, what's that? I've never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand the concern. Um, yeah, not. I'm not educated in it at all. Yeah. I would I would lean towards the side of hope. I think the people that have the mindset of like, yeah, this really sucks and, you know, they messed up some things that really uh, made our life easier and yeah. some core fundamentals they they violated like our trust. Yeah. You know, as the leaders of our country. But yeah, my disclaimer is like I don't think that it's going to destroy a small business. I think it'll ultimately, you know, it'll ultimately come out on top. But it'll take a while. It's not. It doesn't happens. mean it's not going to come without pain. No, and I even if you're just starting a small business and to get a great economy or a bad economy, it sucks. Yeah, like it sucks mm -hmm. putting yourself out there and telling people like I created this thing. I think it's really awesome, and you should pay me money for it. Yeah, I uh, reminds me of that conversation I just had with uh, Dallas Henson, Kyle Porter, the two farmers from Washington. Um, Dallas, uh, he, his his farm and his the, the family that he had, they do mostly organic. Mm -hmm. And there's a different kind of challenge when it comes to organic ag agriculture versus conventional, right? Um, because there's it's more labor intensive, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it was really easy a long time ago for, you know, Monsanto to come in and say, look at this chemical, look how pretty our, you know, your crops look now and, and stuff like that. And it, it like expedited the agricultural industry with all the yeah. fertilizers and stuff like that. And then as mm -hmm. we've had years go by, there's some side effects to making things move at that rate. Mm. Um, kind of like what you said with the trees. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I, I don't know if there's a huge correlation between nutritional value, between conventional and organic, but I've been eating organic for a while. I feel better when I eat organic. Yeah. Like my gut, it feels better. And I can't really quantify it, but it just might, I go with my gut with it and it like, it you know, it feels better. So there might be some correlation there. There might be something to this thing that we got to look in. Is it good for us to make things easier and more accessible is it or or does the rewarding part of it come from the toil i think it does it's when you know 
God created us even before we got kicked out. He's like, you should work mm-hmm. every single day or six days a week or whatever he said. And I think it's because there's intrinsic value from that. Even if you don't get anything from it, you learned something about yourself. You made somebody else's life better. You added value to others. And it's kind of an internal payment in and of itself. It's just like serving and being generous even though you don't get anything from it. Maybe it comes back tenfold, maybe it doesn't, but that's not the point of it. You added value to someone else's life. Sure. And working hard for what you have is super important too because you don't owe anybody anything for what you have. You manage your finances, right? Shameless plug. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) shameless plug. (laughs) And... You can enjoy it. You just have a sense of pride, like I can relax in Mm -hmm. my own home now. Yeah. I can just enjoy it and I don't have to worry about working 80 hours a week Mm -hmm. just to eat. And it's the same thing with the food we put in our bodies and how we take care of ourselves. It's a lot more work on the front end and then one day after you put the work in and then another day you put the work in and then another day you put the work in and then another day you put the work in and then you just start waking up and not as foggy and you think a little bit more clearer you're less angry you're a little bit slower to talk and you listen a little bit more and things just get better and you're like hmm I guess overnight successes really aren't overnight successes yeah yeah it is, it is hard to get that when you're in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where community becomes yeah. important. Yeah, that support system. Um, I, I've said it in prior, prior podcast episodes there during the Great Depression and um, big you know economic changes in the country. The Great Depression, there was families back then were massive. Mm-hmm. Today, you look at families where you know, the two people might get married and they say, I'm never having kids because it's like an inconvenience now. Yeah. Like they look at kids as inconvenience. But it's like, if that's the case, how come people in the Great Depression had like 12 kids mm-hmm. and then they still managed to survive? And now those kids are off living life now. They, they had kids, you know, this convenience lifestyle is ultimately leading us to our extinction. Mm-hmm. You know, birth rates are down. It's like demographically. I listen to Peter Zion. He, he's a mm-hmm. like a global macroeconomic mm-hmm. dude. He's on Rogan recently. He studies demographics. Mm-hmm. He thinks that China, because of their one-child policy, is ultimately what's going to screw China. I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, because they're they're the lack of men mm-hmm. and based on what they were building, they would take people out of the rural areas and bring them into the cities. Well, when they do that, it's the same thing here. People in cities, it's more expensive to live in a city. They're more busy. And so kids are even more inconvenient in cities. But you look at rural areas here in America, even, 
more people have kids in rural areas than they do in the big cities. Mm -hmm. But the rural areas, especially when it comes to agriculture, are the ones that provide all the food for everybody in the big cities. Yeah. And so if your priorities aren't right, as far as your economics or what you provide for the world, if your priorities aren't right, it ultimately ends to things going really bad for especially people in cities first. We make decisions based on what we believe, right? Yeah. It ultimately uh, bleeds over into other people. You can't change other people, but you can influence mm -hmm. them. And even the things you don't mean to bleed over to them. Yeah. So like what you're saying at a micronutrient level, the decisions you make every day affect where your community is going to be in 20 years. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, you know, as you started to study personal finance and then also doing this job as a cop, has one impacted the other? Yeah, unknowingly. Mm -hmm. um, I think as a cop, you... I mean, I don't think there's a demographic of people that we don't get exposed to, unless you're in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But we're not. We're in one of the biggest tourist areas in the world. Mm -hmm. And just being able to be in, not just around, but in every kind of person's life has exposed me to not only the problems that they face, but being able to think about the solutions and how I can provide that to different people. Because law enforcement is great and needed and it's an awesome job. I enjoy it and I hope I'm in it a long time. But at the end of the day, we can only do what we can do and we can't solve long-term problems. Yeah, I mean, you're technically the whole protect and serve thing isn't actually in your mandate. It's law enforcement. Yeah. You enforce the laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can go to a situation, I can deal with the situation, then I can leave. Mm-hmm. That's it. Whatever comes of it. <laughs> yeah. That's... Yeah, I can see why there's dudes that would leave that and go be attorneys mm -hmm. and essentially advocates for police. Mm -hmm. uh, I could see why they would do that because you guys are up against it and no one ever sees a cop like for a good reason. No. You know. I, more so in this community, but still no. Yeah. Like it's this it's worse in big cities, but we're becoming slowly becoming a big city here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I mean there's not many big cities in Idaho. Mm -mm. Yeah. I mean when you when people hear Idaho, they think either Boise or Coeur d'Alene. Right. And Welcome to Coeur d'Alene. I mean, most honestly, like I didn't even really think about Idaho. I would always think about Montana because I have friends there. Mm -hmm. um, Washington because of Seattle. Mm -hmm. But like Eastern Washington where it's all agricultural. Yeah. I never thought of it, never came to mind. And then Montana, you're like, oh, beautiful Montana. It's a really big state. Like, mm -hmm. But I never thought of Idaho. Like it's, it's like a pass-through state. It's weird. Too, because we're only a 70 mile gap in between the yeah. two states, like for a hundred miles mm -hmm. from north to south. And people don't realize they've come through here. You meet people all the time that 
think they're in Washington when they're in Coeur d'Alene, mm-hmm. 10 miles into Idaho. Yeah, I mean, like like you were saying, like Coeur d'Alene and Spokane just kind of bleed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, do you see, you, you've addressed that you see the need for it. Um, do you have bigger aspirations once you get the thing rolling? Do you plan on leaving the, the police profession or do you... I've been, Just build the business and then have people run the financial side of it for you. No, I, I've i gone back and forth, honestly. Uh, my heart lies in both places. And most days I'm like, I really enjoy my career and I would love to promote and retire one day. And then uh, I also realize that it, may not be, you know, the place to stay from a personal health standpoint. Yeah. Hopefully I last as long as I can. And right. I'm gonna do my best every single day, like I have done for five years, but um when it comes to do I do that at the cost of um you know my health or my family? If yeah. it comes to that, I'll always choose the latter. Right. But if I don't have to choose, I'll continue it and hopefully grow the business and yeah. be able to do both. That's the dream. Sure, yeah. But the business is uh, a backup plan, essentially, because I never had that. I never finished college because I was stupid and I hate college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of college either. Yeah, It's different now, I think. Like, I don't know, this... There's so much like political and bureaucratic nonsense that's in college now that even the material that they're, the curriculums that are approved, it's like, it just seems dumbed down. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get people to get their degree and pass. And yeah. so they're lowering the standards, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see that as valuable, especially when there's a huge financial burden that accompanies that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know all about that. I'm sure you talk to many people with student loans and oh, yeah. having to get through all that. Um. Yeah, it is, you know, from the, the the cop perspective, I guess it would be like a, it's such a necessary role in society. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important to let the cops be able to do their job, mm-hmm. you know, because it's already a taxing profession, mentally, physically. Yeah. But then if you have the very government that's making the laws not working with their law enforcement officers, it's mm-hmm. like, dude, why am I even doing this? Right. Yeah. Because people aren't getting any like more righteous. No. People are getting worse. They're getting more violent, you know? Yeah. And it just becomes a personal choice for every cop. Yeah, sure. Do you, do you want to keep doing it? Mm-hmm. Which you absolutely can and it's honorable. Um, but at some point you have to decide is there a different way is there something i can fall back on where i can still live out my why and maybe affect more people because i don't think you have to be a cop to make a difference no no i think you can be a small business owner and have a even bigger impact i think you can be a janitor and have an even bigger impact sure i don't think you have to be a first responder mm-hmm. to, you know, live that life of uh, just connecting with other people because that's all it is. Yeah. 
It's kind of funny you bring that up because I've always been curious about just American mentality around certain professions. We like idolize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Military is a big one. Right now it's like this huge idolization of people that were in special operations, mm. which is such a tiny role in the military. Mm-hmm. And there's like, they're idolizing them. And then something comes out where it's like, oh yeah, that person's actually human. And they were a piece of shit, even though they had, <laughs> yeah. you know, a Navy SEAL Triton or something, they're actually, they suck. Didn't mm-hmm. know that. Um, you're always going to find that human beings, you you know, we all fall short. Yeah. So the idolization doesn't make sense. But because we do that, we tend to think that we can't make a difference. That, oh, that that's the hero over there. They're the ones that get to make the choices and make the decision and make the difference in people's communities. Mm-hmm. We always think like, oh, we're too small for that. And so, <laughs> dog come over saying hi. Um, you know, I, I think you're right about that, man. I think there's, you know, we all have a voice, especially if you're running businesses, you're the leaders in your community. Mm-hmm. So you gotta start acting like it. You know, and it starts with in the home, your personal finances, how you treat your family. If you can't do that, there's no way you're managing other people. No, it bleeds over. Yeah. You can hide it for so long, but it bleeds over. Sure. I think uh, we could probably end it there, man. That's a good spot to to end this thing. All right. Um, How can people find you to get your your services? Not the cop ones. (laughs) Uh, I do have a Facebook, Finding Hope Financial Coaching. Um, or you can email me at gjoling at findinghopefinancial.com. Okay. Um, now, you work in Idaho, but can mm-hmm. you help people in other states if they were to hear you? 100%. Okay, yeah. cool. California, Texas, Florida, Washington, I don't care. Dope. That's cool. All right, man. Well, Gabe, thanks for being on, man. Thanks it's, for having it's me. It's good seeing you, dude. I haven't seen you in forever. It, it's been at least seven years, I think. Oh, my gosh. Time has flown by. Whenever you went to North Carolina? No, when you went to Vegas. Yeah, so probably seven years ago. Yeah, around there. I think. I mean, all, I don't know, because I lived there for like six or seven years. You came back to visit once and then I had moved. That's true. I definitely saw you before you were married. Mm-hmm. So, dude, the time is just passing by. I was with my buddies hanging out recently and- I haven't seen my buddy Kyle in like nine years. Mm-hmm. Like when he got out of the military and moved out, I, that was the last time I saw him. So yeah. it was like, it's just like, dude, what is going on? Now we're all got health problems. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to get worse. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, again, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, please share this show. There is literally no way that this is getting out there unless you share it. Um, that goes for you too. I will. Okay. Um, Yeah, so thanks. Please stay tuned in for future episodes. I'm still on this road trip. I got two more after this up here in Idaho, and then I'm going down to Las Vegas, and I got a few people to talk to down there before I head back to Texas. So y'all take care, and I'll see you in the next episode.